This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Daphna. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. I think we're 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 getting through the cardiac questions, so I'm feeling good about that. It's dense, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we are uh, powering through. It's Thursday, and uh, you're up. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, let's do it. All right, so we're doing cardiology question number 25. Mm-hmm. Daphna, a six-day-old female born at 24 weeks is receiving TPN through a central venous catheter. Mm. She presents, you know, you know that. <laughs> you know, I have the, I, I'm a, a stickler for central venous catheter position. <laughs> oh yeah, and you know that uh, this is really uh, they're they're setting up the stage for a disaster here. <laughs> she presents suddenly with a narrowed pulse pressure, tachycardia, and a, chest, and a chest radiograph that reveals cardiomegaly. Mm-hmm. Her heart sounds are muffled, distal pulse is weak, and her cap refill is greater than five seconds. Moreover, her urine output has dropped to less than 0.5 ml per kilo per hour. Which of the following types of shock is most likely occurring in this infant? Choice A, dissociative. Choice B, distributive. Choice C, flow-restrictive. Choice D, hypovolemic. Okay. Well, so first you have to know what's going on, right, with the with the baby. So I think they gave us some really key findings. For example, the fact that she does have a central line. So she's a narrowed pulse pressure, um, uh, high heart rate, and cardiomegaly in the face of muffled heart sounds. So I'm already worried for um, cardiac tamponade, um, at least at least um, like a pericardial effusion. But then they start to give us some more information that the peripheral perfusion is bad and that the urine output has decreased. So so this looks like more like tamponade physiology. And so, so actually, in terms of these answers, um, you know, we've gone over some of the stages of shock, and I know. You will do them again, but I mean, this one is exactly what it sounds like. So it's 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 C flow restrictive because literally we're restricting the flow from leaving the heart basically because of the um, tamponade physiology, right? Um, yeah. So you are you are right. Flow restrictive is correct. Uh, we did speak about um, about shock already um, this week, but. This is exactly why the boards are such a pain is because you have another question on shock and mm-hmm. the choices are no longer the same. They're totally before. different. <laughs> it's like, what the heck? Um, so so there are two of them in there that we've reviewed before, uh, most notably choice B and D. Choice D is hypovolemic. We're not going to go too much back into that, but you remember that um, issues with, with shock are having to do with blood flow to the tissues that is becoming inadequate for metabolic demands that leads to hypoxia, that then leads to acidosis, that then leads to cellular changes, cellular death. So hypovolemic 
um, shock is when you have a decreased blood volume and eventually that leads to uh, to acidosis. I could see why though if if you missed some of the other clinical features, you know, there's decreased perf- I mean um, delayed cap refill, decreased urine output. So, you know, I could see why somebody picked, you know, would pick hy- almost almost any of the types of shock, right? Except right. And, for and, one. And then that's right, we remember that this is the this these are the outcomes of shock, right? right. It's decreased blood pressure, decreased urine output, increased heart rate. Um so yeah, so that's hypovolemic. And then we also talked about distributive shock. Mm-hmm. We said distributive is vasodilation. And we said that this happens in usually in like sepsis and stuff like that, where uh, your vessels are so dilated that even though your blood volume is kind of okay, it's just inadequate to actually create enough pressure to uh, perfuse your tissues and, and lead to proper cardiac filling. And so all that stuff eventually leads to poor cardiac output, poor blood pressure, poor urine output, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the two that we've reviewed already before. And um, if you uh, don't recall, this was episode 14. So that was, uh, I believe, Tuesday that we reviewed those. But now let's talk about the two new ones that are making their appearances. So the first one we have is choice A, which is called dissociative shock. And I thought that was something that's, that's a bit peculiar. What does that mean, dissociative shock? And it actually means that there's an inadequate O2 release capacity of of the blood, meaning your blood is making its way to the tissue, but there's something wrong inside the blood that's causing uh, an an impairment of delivery of oxygen. And so these will happen most notably in like carbon monoxide poisoning, methemoglobinemia, or really, really severe, severe anemia. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense then because Mm -hmm. um, the volume of blood is there but there's something wrong with your red blood cells. And so they cannot provide oxygen. And so at the end of the day, your metabolic demands are not met. And back again, uh, hypoxia, acidosis, cellular death. What's interesting about dissociative shock is that technically um, your peripheral pulses should be normal. Mm-hmm. Your perfusion should be okay. Your urine output should be okay. Your contractility should be okay. Because so the blood is in- there. Because the blood is there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You're, yeah. So in this case, you can see that this is not the right answer. So then it leads us to flow restrictive shock. And that's what you were saying. I think they're setting the stage to present a, a central venous catheter uh, infiltration. Um, and this, um, this, this tamponade really will cause the shock. And so flow restrictive is sort of synonymous for cardiogenic shock, mm-hmm. which is another one that we did review. And so this is a form of obstructive shock where the fluid accumulating in and around the heart in, uh, in this case is causing cardiac failure, where the contractility mm-hmm. of the heart is super uh, inhibited and eventually there's decreased output, decreased urine output, decreased blood pressure. And technically heart rate should try to compensate, but in this case, mm-hmm. there's a mechanical obstruction for heart rate to actually do that. Uh, and if you remember cardiogenic shock, we've talked about the fact that CHF is a is a concern, metabolic uh, disease, and like in this case, cardiac tamponade. And so, we learned in this in these choices about this this other form of shock called dissociative that we didn't touch on last time, and this flow restrictive, which is just a curveball trying to make you realize that this is the same as cardiogenic. So yeah, that was the question. Good job. Okay, your turn. Yeah. I think you're going to get this question right. Okay. (laughs) Question 26. The most common cause of hypertension in a neonate is A, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, B, coarctation, 
C, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or D, renovascular disease? Yeah, so it's this is the typical question I get wrong because <laughs> I think it's super straightforward and then I will just create myself a bunch of obstacles and just stumble upon the obstacles I set for myself because my... I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, they're saying a neonate, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, ooh, is that term, preterm, both? Mm -hmm. And then I automatically go for renovascular disease. But I'm like, I remember that these are like notably the kids who had uh, umbilical lines. And I'm like, but if neonate means terms, then they don't necessarily have lines. So is it renovascular when they use the word neonate? In this case, I did it. I did get it right, I think, because I did pick renovascular disease mostly because bronchopulmonary dysplasia is something that affects a very tiny portion of neonates in general, right? I mean, if you think of your preterm babies and then of the preterm babies, the ones who do get bronchopulmonary, it's very minimal. Coarctation also, I don't have the epidemiologic sort of rate in my head, but it's not something that's like the most common thing. And then CAH, congenital adrenal hyperplasia is another one where I'm like, I don't exactly know what the incidence is, but it's definitely not like something we see every day. So uh, I picked renovascular disease, a bit scared <laughs> circling that, <laughs> like, hopefully this is not wrong. No, I think I think that was the, the right approach. Um, and the answer is D, renovascular disease. And and you're right. So for, for bronchopulmonary dysplasia is something that is, you know, on the forefront of our minds all the time. But when you think about all the neonates, including neonates who go to the newborn nursery, um, very few of them have bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Very few of them have coarctation and very few of them have congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, they all do have two kidneys though that are, that have opportunities for, for disease. And some of the causes of renovascular disease are thromboembolism, which again is most common in our sick neonates, but renal artery stenosis, um, renal vein thrombosis can be seen even in infants and diabetic mothers, um, and compression of a renal artery from some sort of um, anatomic uh, problem. Um, so there are lots of reasons why why you can have renovascular disease, which is different from renal disease, which can also cause hypertension. Um, so things like multicystic dysplastic kidney, polycystic kidney disease, some sort of obstructive uropathy, um, some of the uh, nephritides, so pyelonephritis or glomerulonephritis, um, and then Wilms tumor, which again doesn't usually uh, most of those don't present in the neonatal period. Um, coarctation of the aorta should certainly give you, could cert, could give you um, hypertension. Um, you'd expect that to be more in the upper extremities than the lower extremities. Um, but again, it's, it's just not that common. And the pulmonary, most common pulmonary causes bronchopulmonary dysplasia, like you discussed. There are some neurologic uh, causes, so increased intracranial pressure, things like um, hydrocephalus can cause hypertension, seizures, uh, neural crest tumors, drug withdrawal, so a lot of our NAS babies um, or babies withdrawing from other substances can have hypertension, and uh, you don't want to forget about pain. And then uh, the adrenal causes, um, CAH is the most common, um, but it's not that common in general. 
So hyperaldosteronism, hyperthyroidism, and adrenal hemorrhage can also all cause hypertension. There are a number of drugs that can cause hypertension, steroids um, and the adrenergic agents, so dopamine, epinephrine, and phenylephrine, phenylephrine. And then something we give all the time, caffeine, can also cause hypertension. Some of the other things we have to think about are in our post-surgical babies, so fluid overload and uh, closure of abdominal wall defects or really any abdominal surgery or some intrathoracic surgeries can cause uh, hypertension. But the most common cause of hypertension in a neonate is renovascular disease. Hmm. Um, And we actually on on the other podcast have recently discussed – uh, how many of our preemies do actually develop hypertension in childhood, um, and and most they they should follow up with nephrology. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I'm I'm now realizing how easy the question is, considering that if I had all these other choices when it comes to pain, <laughs> NAS, that would have made it much more tedious, much more much more difficult, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> or a certain clinical scenario that would have been. But renovascular is the most common in neonates. That's that's something that's valuable, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which again, that's not renal disease. So I think that would have thrown me off potentially uh, if I had to choose between renovascular and renal disease. I don't know. I may have picked renal disease, but it's renovascular mm. specifically is most common. Okay. Okay. Um, we're moving right along. Question number 27. This is one that is very, very good. Very um, good. <laughs> which of the following syndromes is the most common cause of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in neonates and children under age four years? Choice A, Appert syndrome. Choice B, charge association. Choice C, Noonan syndrome. Choice D, trisomy 18. Choice E, Turner syndrome. Okay, so I got the I got this question. Right, but I I didn't know the answer, <laughs> so I think we should go over it. So I, I got this question right only by process of elimination. So I know that Apert syndrome has limb uh, problems in um, craniosynostosis, but I it does not have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Charge syndrome um, has congenital heart disease, but not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mm -hmm. So Noonan syndrome, I I wasn't sure about, and I I didn't know. I can see they have, you know, they are, they have some lymphatic, you know, lymphatic issues. Okay. Might they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Maybe. So I went to my other answer choices. Trisomy 18, I know can have a lot of congenital heart disease, but again, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is not one of them. And I am, Turner syndrome also, not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So I picked C, but not because I knew that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Yeah, you're correct. It's it's a question I got wrong initially in the course of my studying. Mm-hmm. And then it's something that comes up comes a lot, up a lot <laughs> yeah. uh, asking you what's the most common cause of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And it is Noonan syndrome. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to spend too much time on, I feel like we're going to go over genetics, so we're going to go over a bunch of these syndromes. And I do want to focus on Noonan because it's something that, um, it's an easy question to get if you know what they're talking about. I think um, it's important to know that it's an autosomal dominant uh, uh, condition and uh, the mutation is located on chromosome 12. 
However, what's important to know is that 70% of these mutations okay. are de novo. Um, so this is another thing they like to ask. Um, interestingly enough, um, they have, uh, it's, it's a super tricky condition yeah. because it's Turner-like. So mm -hmm. uh, you'll have edema of the dorsum of the hand, a little bit like Turner. Uh, they'll have a flat nasal bridge, a protruding upper lip, low set ears. Um, they'll have downslanting of the palpebral fissures. They'll have retrognathia. They'll have short web neck. Mm -hmm. And so all these things mm -hmm. like can, all these things will point towards maybe like, oh, is this Turner? Oh, is this trisomy 21? So it, it, they love asking about it because it's super easy to get confused. But there are a few things that are making it uh, uh, unique. And the most common thing is the fact that they have a dysplastic pulmonary valve. Mm -hmm. That's something that we should know. And the fact that they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and that, in my opinion, is the thing I've seen asked the most, that uh, they have cardiac condition, and that's most of the time uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and they're the most common cause of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, boys with, <clears throat> with Noonan can have uh, cryptoorchidism. And a few other things they do like to ask about Noonan syndrome is um, the fact that it's associated, so, so the 70% of cases of Noonan are associated with a mutation of a specific protein kinase, and it's the RAS mitogen-activated mm -hmm. protein, the RAS MAPK. I've seen that asked as well. Um, and then the long-term uh, question they do like to ask about Noonan is also the fact that these babies have uh, impaired language development. Um, so to summarize, these babies have an autosomal dominant uh, condition that presents a little bit like Turner. 70% of them are de novo. And the most common cardiac finding is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, they also have this plastic pulmonary valve, but Noonan is notorious for being the most common cause of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in uh, neonates and children. It is uh, associated with mutation of the RAS MAPK, the RAS mitogen activated protein kinase. Um, and they have long-term language delay. Now, what are some of the other syndromes associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? And that's where I guess it gets super mm -hmm. tricky is trisomy 21 is associated with it. So downslanding palpebral right. fissures, you could get full there again, be careful. Beckwith-Wiedemann is another one, Costello syndrome, and Eagle-Barrett syndrome, also known as prune-belly mm -hmm. prune syndrome. So yeah, this is super high yield and... Uh, yeah, some of the maybe so think, some of the metabolic syndromes, uh, cardiomyopathy, and then yes, uh, and but these are diabetes. rare, right? These are these are rare, so they're right. not the most common cause. And I think, and I think where Brodsky and Martin were kind of kind in the question is that they could have presented some of the features of the baby and left Noonan mm -hmm. and Turner, and you would have been even more confused. So just be okay. Well, I thought that was a tricky question. <laughs> it was, it was. Okay, question 28. A fetus at 20 weeks gestation is diagnosed with congenital heart block. Which of the following statements about neonatal lupus erythematosus is false? So A, anti-SSA and uh, SSA rho and anti-SSB law antibodies are nearly universally found in the serum of women whose fetuses are diagnosed in utero with congenital heart block. B, complete congenital heart block is irreversible and surviving children typically require pacing. C, 
Congenital heart block resulting from NLE is typically diagnosed between 16 and 24 weeks gestation. D, the majority of mothers of neonates diagnosed with congenital heart block have symptoms of systemic lupus erythematosus. And E, the mortality rate of congenital heart block in NLE is approximately 20%. Okay. Another high yield question. Mm. Um, all right. Let me go one by one because these are very long-winded question answers. Um, choice A, the fact that antibodies need to be present, especially Rho and LA antibodies that I remember um, that I remember pretty well being needed for the presence of uh, to 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 trigger heart block in the neonate. So I think that is correct. Um, so I will leave that off. Um, choice B states that complete congenital heart block is irreversible and surviving children require pacing. I know that's to be true because that's my fear. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> whenever we have a baby with SLE, that they will have third degree heart block and then they would need pacing and pacing is always a mess in the NICU mm. somehow because the kids are so small and how are you going to pace them externally, the wires, not the wires. So I, that I remember. Now C, I didn't know whether congenital heart block resulting from uh, lupus typically diagnosed between 16 and 24 weeks. I had no idea. I was like, maybe, uh, I just don't know. Uh, choice D uh, was saying that mothers, uh, the majority of mothers of neonates diagnosed with congenital heart block have symptoms of lupus. That I remember to be false. I remember that this is something that uh, I had read that the mother may have lupus, may be asymptomatic, and yet the kids still may have symptoms of congenital heart block. So now I was a bit more sure of that being false than C. Uh, and then the majority, the mortality rate of uh, congenital heart block was about 20%. To be honest, I was like, sure. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but at the end, I was hesitating between C, D, and E, and I remembered pretty more vividly in my mind that like yeah mothers who have no symptoms can still give birth to babies who will be symptomatic if they have these antibodies and so uh, I picked it. yeah so d is the correct answer because it is false so like you said the that's right the the statement the true statement is that the majority of mothers of neonates diagnosed with congenital heart block have no symptoms of, of lupus um, and some of that is because they just haven't developed symptoms yet. So I had a case where um, the baby had congenital heart block, mommy got the whole workup, was found to have the antibodies, and then during the NICU admission started developing her symptoms of, of lupus. And so she definitely had it, but she, she had not um, had symptoms or had not, um, had not uh, identified symptoms that, that were uh, consistent with lupus. So let's talk about this a little bit. So like you said, um, neonatal lupus results from the transfer of these um, lupus antibodies from a pregnant woman to her fetus. And in doing so, it injures fetal tissue, including especially the cardiac tissue. And that is why complete congenital heart block is irreversible. It's because the antibodies actually injure the fetal tissue. They are universally found in uh, the serum of women whose fetuses are diagnosed in utero with congenital heart block. Um, and we can, we, see, we can see a lot of conduction abnormalities, all kinds of conduction abnormalities. So really, most babies who have some sort of um, arrhythmia, one of the more rare kinds of arrhythmias, we should be evaluating for acquired um, autoimmune uh, disease, especially in the family. But the most concerning one is congenital heart block. Um, 
And like you said, the abnormal cardiac rhythm is typically diagnosed between 16 and 24 weeks gestation, so is frequently diagnosed antenatally, but not always. And then uh, the the antibodies tend to disappear from neonates at about six to eight months of postnatal life. So I've seen that come up as a question also. The overall risk of congenital heart block is still very low. Even of all babies born to mothers with lupus, it's about 2%. But unfortunately, um, for babies with congenital heart block, the mortality is 20%. Um, and this is for fetus and newborn because, um, and unfortunately, it affects fetuses as well, like we said. Um, and so we do, unfortunately, see some intrauterine deaths associated with it as well. Babies can have rash. They can have liver and blood cell abnormalities with neonatal lupus. Um, and those tend to go away with uh, the resolution of the, the antibodies. Unfortunately, like we said, the congenital heart block is generally irreversible, and those children um, require piecing. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that 80 to 90% of all congenital heart block is caused by lupus antibodies. So it's not the only reason babies can have congenital heart block, but it's for sure the most common one. So all family, all families with babies presenting with heart block should be evaluated for lupus. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention is that not just conduction abnormalities, but also structural congenital heart disease is also increased in babies born to a parent with lupus. So um, we, if that's in the history, the baby should be getting EKGs and echoes um, postnatally, even if they didn't have arrhythmias um, during pregnancy. Interesting. So that's so that's a good reason for the mm -hmm. echo postnatally in a mother who had lupus, because not only the conduction stuff, the congenital heart diseases could still mm -hmm. be present at a higher risk. Huh. Okay. Is that it for for lupus? That's pressure? it. Do we have time for one more? Thank you so much. We don't. No, we don't. <laughs> um, we'll see you tomorrow, though. We have a bunch of good questions that's for tomorrow. It. Thank you for listening Bye, to Daphne. this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.